So happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. It's recording day. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> it's recording day at approximately 8.31 at night because Michael delays all his research until the last possible second. Isn't that how you're supposed to do everything? I don't think you should go on record at that at all. Oh. I'm not you're condoning. You're not supposed to do it that way. I've been doing it wrong my entire life. If it makes you feel any better, so have I. And probably every listener that we have. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm sure there's some overachievers out there, but still. We thank you all. <laughs> I have something to say for last week's episode. So, last week we talked about Mary Vincent. Should we re-intro first? Because we're not using any of this for the intro. You told me it had to be before the intro. But Oh, before we like even talk at all? Oh, no. Before the music. Well, yeah. Obviously before the music. I think we can make it work. With what we have? Yeah. I mean, if you think so. Do you want to so. give, give me two options? I don't know what we would say otherwise. I don't either. Just go for it. Okay. I have something to say for last week's episode. Maybe say before we begin. <laughs> Just as food for thought. Before we begin. You yelled too loud. You spiked. Before we begin, I have something to say. You sound like last- a robot. You got to do it again. Say it naturally. Jesus. Before we begin, I have something to say about last week's episode update last week we talked about mary vincent and like an idiot i couldn't think of the word cabaret because that was the type of dancing she was doing and my brain just said music music dancing (laughs) music dancing (laughs) because that's not all dancing but um so the type of dancing she did was like cabaret dancing (laughs) that's all i got we're not afraid to correct our mistakes and or inability to remember specific words. No. Not on this show. No. And I mean, if I don't write it down, it's my fault. How am I supposed to remember things? You're supposed to remember things? Well, exactly. So if you don't write it down, you don't remember it. And I didn't write it down. So, of course, I didn't remember. And on that note, I'm Brandy. And I'm Mike. And, and this, this is, is Sunshine, Sunshine and Murder. ready for today i am always not ready for today but i am hyped nonetheless let's go let's talk about murder murder that's bad things yes (laughs) (laughs) just to make sure we're all on the same page murders are bad so today i'm going to tell you the story of the axe man of new orleans the axe man of new orleans yep there better be some gruesome gory things in this to have earned the name Axeman of New Orleans. Oh, just wait. <laughs> oh, just wait. The good thing is this shouldn't make everybody as angry as the last ones. So. So no child murder? 
That's a plus. She didn't say no for no child murder. I just want to point that out. (laughs) Great. Cool. Perfect. Here we go. Child murder. On May 22nd, 1918, Italian-Americans Joseph and Catherine Maggio, and I'm going to say that's important. I didn't just put it in there for the hell of it. They're Italian. Oh, I was like, you didn't you didn't put that they have names and that they're people in there for no reason. I don't no, understand. they're Italian, and that matters. And that matters. Okay. Anyway, because they really like pasta. Yes, they were sleeping in their apartment above their grocery store when a man cut a lower wooden panel out of their back door and came into the bedroom. He cut their throats with a straight razor. Then, before he left, he took an axe he found in the house and smashed their heads in. Cool. So when I asked for gore and, like, gruesome stuff, I meant, like, alluding to, not, like, detailing out graphically all the violence that occurred. But thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm sure the listeners are very appreciative. I'm sure. And there's more. (laughs) And there's more. So Joseph's brothers, Jake and Andrew, found the bodies about two hours after they had been attacked. And, to their surprise, Joseph was still alive. After having his throat slit and his head smashed in? Yep. Cool, cool. Unfortunately, he did pass away after he was found because, like you said, his throat was cut and his head was smashed in. I just want to point out, I, I think it would be worse to survive that initially just to die later. I think so, too. That sucks. That was me self-censoring. You're welcome. I'm leaving that in. (laughs) Okay, so Catherine died before anybody got there Mm -hmm. because her throat was cut so much, it was almost severed from her shoulders. How do you even do that with a straight... Okay, no, don't don't answer that. Just continue. (laughs) So when the police searched the house, they found bloody clothes, suggesting the murderer changed before he left. Like steal homeboy's clothes? He was like, mm, you know, this suit in the closet's actually pretty nice. Let no, me, uh... I don't. I don't think he stole clothes. I think he brought them with him. Oh, so because the police ruled out robbery because nothing was missing. To be fair, mm-hmm. would the cops know if like? pair of pants and a shirt were missing well i'm sure they talked to his brothers and his brothers know every pair of pants and shirt that he owns you know i just well yeah but it at least didn't look like he went through the closet or anything yeah because he doesn't look he rummaged through things so the straight razor the police found in a neighbor's yard and they found out it belonged to joseph's brother andrew who owned a barbershop While interviewing one of Andrew's employees, the police found out that Andrew had removed the straight razor from the shop about two days before the murders. Andrew said he removed it because there was a nick in the blade and he wanted to fix it. How the employee knew that this specific razor was removed, I I don't know. It might have had something written on it like, I'm about to be a murder weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how do you tell the difference? I'm about to be used for a very heinous act. No, but seriously. Also, is it, like, labeled for the... 
place? Like, how do you even know that that's where the straight razor came from? Aside from like one employee being like, oh, we just happened to have had a straight razor be taken out the other day. I, I think it was more of the brother found them. There was a straight razor used. The brother was a barber. And like, it just kind of added up. And they were just like, hmm. And the police interviewed them and they were like, oh, they took one out. Yeah. I don't know if Andrew identified the razor as saying like, that's mine or if there was something i didn't whatever yeah it may have been um maybe they were fancy i don't know maybe they were engraved with his initials or something maybe there was some sort of like signifying thing on so i don't know but living that close to each other and being brothers i wouldn't be surprised if andrew's stuff was at joseph's apartment no for sure speaking of which andrew lived next door (laughs) in in case case all the very subtle clues He said he never heard anything because he was intoxicated. He was celebrating because he was about to be deployed with the Navy. Mm -hmm. Then in the early morning hours of the 23rd, he said he heard groaning noises coming from next door and went to check on his brother and sister-in-law, which is when he found the bodies. How he heard groaning noises, but not someone smashing someone's head in with an axe, I'm not sure. But then also, I don't know how loud smashing someone's head in with an axe is because I don't have experience experience with that. <laughs> Not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, I guess if he was heavily intoxicated and like drunk off his ass and then he like sober up in the morning when he woke up and yeah. he's like, what is that noise next door? Like maybe he did hear something. He just didn't know he heard something. Yeah, exactly. So obviously he became the prime suspect, but was ruled out when his alibi held up. That never happens. Right? It's usually like, Oh, we're going to make this work for us. Mm-hmm. So even though you have a pretty good alibi, we're going to yeah. poke holes in it. But but no. didn't work. Okay. Usually it's like, yeah, I was at my girlfriend's brother's mom's dog's house. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> nope, it was just me and the dog hanging out. So I don't really have any. Having <laughs> <laughs> some water and milk bones. Yeah, exactly. So a little over a month later, on June 27th, 1918, shortly after 7 a.m., a baker shows up to a grocery store owned by Louis Bessumer. How bad do you think you butchered that name? Pretty bad. <laughs> B-E-S-U-M-E-R. I mean, maybe you said it wrong. Let me see it. Can I see it without like, spoiling anything? No, that's probably exactly what I would have said. Everyone else can tell me if it's wrong. It's fine. So when the store wasn't open and no one answered when he's like banging on the door, he became concerned and went to the back door, mm-hmm. which went to the apartment that him and his wife live in. Okay. And he noticed a small wooden panel had been removed from the door. Then the baker entered the apartment and found the Bessumers covered in blood, but they were both still alive. I am almost... Hold on. Did, are you about to tell me that they survived or did they die? Go ahead. No, because this is in context with whether or not they survived or died. Is it a spoiler? Should I just say what I'm going to say and then you figure it out? Or you can wait. I'll just wait. Okay. They had both been attacked by a man with an axe but the axe belonged to Lewis. And then after arriving at the hospital, they discovered that it wasn't Mrs. Bessemer, but it was his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Oh. Harriet was hit in the head with the axe just above her left ear. And yes, they both did survive. They both survived. Both of them. No shit. Mm -hmm. Those poor bastards. Yeah. I mean, they survived, so congratulations. You're badasses, but at the same time, what kind of life do you live after getting your head smashed in with an axe? Right. I'm assuming not a very good one. No. But let me tell you about Harriet. <laughs> Let's hear about Harriet Lowe. 
So Harriet told police Lewis was a German spy. This is post-head smashing in, so yes. maybe she's just gone a little nuts. Well, the police arrested him. Wait, is it a German spy? Yep. What year are we in? I'm sorry. 1918. Okay. But he was released two days later, and the police who arrested him were demoted due to unacceptable police work. I mean... Considering they took the word of a delusional woman as a reliable witness, I feel like that's fair. She had just been hit in the head with an axe. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. She's telling the truth. Didn't even like check out the story. You were just like, cool, he's a spy. Yeah. So the attack left one side of her face paralyzed because mm. she was hit, you know, just above the ear. So on August 5th, she had surgery to correct it. Okay. It didn't work because she died two days later oh, due to complications shit. from surgery. Damn. So she survived... Just to die from, like, reconstruction surgery. Yeah. That fucking sucks. Before she died, she told police Lewis was the one who attacked her, and the police arrested him again, even though he was attacked as well and suffered a skull fracture, which I'm not sure how you do that to yourself with an axe. I mean, I... Maybe? Maybe? I... That seems highly suspect, though. I just don't know. Um, The jury... Didn't believe them. I mean, I don't know how and you he could. found they found him not guilty nine months later during the trial. It took nine months for that the trial. Was, that, 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 oh, for the trial to happen. So he was in behind bars for nine months, probably. It's nineteen eighteen, so he might have been out. I don't know how that worked. I don't know the legal system in nineteen eighteen. Yeah. I'm gonna assume he was behind bars for nine months. I would assume so. And if he was, boy, how stupid is that? That should have been an open and shut. Like, no, <laughs> it wasn't me see head smashed in for evidence right i but again i guess again he could have done it to himself but but did they even look into anything to see if he could have done it It feels like they were probably just like well she said he did it so he did it yeah but considering what happened the first time you would think she lied about him being a spy maybe she lied about this yeah it just seems like why would you take her word maybe she's just crazy she had her head smashed in after all yeah so in the early evening of August 5th, which was the same day Harriet had the surgery, eight-month pregnant Anna Schneider woke up to find a dark figure standing over her. Nope, I'm out. He hit her repeatedly in the face with the axe. Uh-huh. Around midnight, her husband Ed was returning from work late uh-huh. and found her. Her scalp was cut open and her face was covered in blood, but she was still alive. <sighs> Anna said she didn't remember anything from the attack, which, how can you blame Lucky her? Lucky her. Yeah. She only remembered a dark figure holding an axe. I just want to point out. That was the only thing she could remember. Remember. Fair. And then, two days after the attack, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Oh, thank God. <sighs> okay. Scared you a little there, didn't I? Uh, yeah. A little bit. I was worried. Now I can bring up my point I was going to say before. This axe murderer is the worst axe murderer in the history of axe murderers. Because at the moment, he's only killed two people. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah. Because, like, I'd hate to be these people surviving after that, but also I wouldn't want to be dead. Yeah. So he's really bad at his job, though. He is. So Ed Schneider told the police nothing was taken from their house. There was no sign of a break-in. And a man was arrested and then released because there was no evidence he was ever at the Schneider house. Do you know how that man was? Yes, but I didn't put it in because he didn't do anything. Okay, fine. He was a black man, and they said he did it, and the police were like, okay, but then released him. That's fucked up. Yes. (laughs) I just wanted to put that on the record. 
I didn't want to put his name in there because it's like he didn't actually do anything. You want to like put the guy on blast for something. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. Especially because he was falsely accused. Yeah. So on August 10th, Pauline and Mary Bruno were woken up by sounds coming from their uncle's bedroom, an Italian grocer named Joseph Romano. When they went to go check on him, they discovered a man fleeing from their house and their uncle with two large gashes in his head. Jesus Christ. Even though it was dark, the sisters were able to say that it was, quote, a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. What the hell is a slouched hat? Well, I looked it up. I was going to say, did you Google it? Because I can right now. (laughs) And it's kind of like a cowboy hat and a fedora had a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Okay, now I have to Google it. Hold on. I have pictures later. I have pictures pictures later. So one side of the brim is like folded up to meet the top. And then there's a chin strap. There's a chin strap? There's a chin strap. So I Googled it. And the definition said, most commonly worn as part of a military uniform, although not always. Isn't that every hat? <laughs> I, but not always. Yeah. But I don't. I, but like not. A beret. But, commonly worn as part of a military uniform, but not always. But not always. Yeah, but you can't say like trucker cap. <laughs> commonly worn as a military uniform, <laughs> but not always. Doesn't really have the same. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. So anyway, the attacker got into the home by cutting a wood panel on the door, just like the others. Nothing was stolen and no one was arrested. Unfortunately, two days after the attack, Joseph Romano died due to his injuries. Yeah. But he was older, so kind of makes sense. Yeah. And I guess the thing is, too, like if someone's swinging an axe around your head, depending on what part they hit, you might yeah. be fine. But if they hit a different part, you might be like totally screwed. So Absolutely. It's like, it just depends on where they hit. Yeah. And also... You've only used the Italian word a couple times, but I'm starting to put two and two together here, I think. Yeah. Are we are we are we murdering some Italian people? Is that what's happening? Someone's got a problem with the it, Italians? Maybe Italian grocers. Oh, specifically grocers. Oh well. What did they do to this guy? I don't know. I'm guessing we're gonna find out. So after Joseph Romano's murder, the city of New Orleans went insane. Police received calls about men lurking in neighborhoods axes being found in people's yards doors and windows that appeared to be tampered with and one report said the axeman was dressed as a woman (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) it's like he's pretending to be a woman and that's how he gets around and the police are like okay a a big burly man is is hiding in plain sight by wearing a dress and running around with an axe. I think he would stick out a little bit. Just, to, I mean, I don't know. It's a pretty good disguise. So people began carrying loaded guns with them and took turns watching over their families at night. Yeah. Then the attack stopped. The end. So either that worked in the sense of like, oh, wait, wait, wait you weren't joking. It's really it. No, it's not. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was so confused for a second because you didn't say anything. I was like, wait, is that really the end? Uh, unfortunately is not the end no i was gonna say, so either that worked for a little bit and it, people like staying up and protecting the people made him go oh shit i gotta be more careful i'll wait a little bit till it dies down or he like got all his targets you know what i mean so a little bit is almost a year okay 
The next attack was on March 10th, 1919. Which makes enough time for her to die down. Yeah. And- when Italian grocer Lorlando Giordano, he heard screaming coming from across the street of the house of Charles Cortamiglia, who was also an Italian grocer. Okay. He rushed over and found Charles laying in a pool of blood. His wife, Rosie, was standing in the doorway with a serious head wound, holding the body of her two-year-old daughter. That's the only one. Come on. It's the only one. But what, what did the kid even do? He hasn't killed any kids before? Hold on, I'll get there. So Rosie told the police she woke up to... F- she woke <laughs> up... <laughs> She's woke now, folks. <laughs> Rosie is woke. She has arisen. So... Rosie told the police she woke up and found her husband fighting a large man holding an axe. When Charles fell to the floor, the man turned to Rosie, who was holding their daughter, and she was begging for their lives. The man took the axe and slammed it down on both of them, cutting Rosie's head and killing the daughter instantly. So at least there's that. At least she didn't suffer. She's still dead. I know. I know. So Charles and Rosie were rushed to the hospital where they were both treated for skull fractures. Charles was released at the hospital after two days, but Rosie needed more care. The police found the trademark wooden panel cut from the back door Mm -hmm. and found out that the axe had indeed belonged to Charles, but nothing was missing from the home. Can I just point out, you better hope you kill me if you also murder my child. Yeah. Because... If I wake up after that, I, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Especially it, after a head injury. It's not going to be good. No. I would think. No. So Rosie told the police that 69-year-old Lorlando and his 18-year-old son Frank were the ones that attacked him. Even though in her first statement she said there was one man. Yeah. Now, now apparently two. there's two. But that's not the only thing. The police arrested both of them. But... Lorlando is 69 and he's not in the best health and his son Frank is way too big to fit into the missing door panel. So how would that have worked? How would they have gotten inside? Yeah. Well, in theory, only one of them would have to get through the door and the other one would open open it. it, But But Charles said absolutely not. He denied Rosie's claim. He's like, that's not who it was. But again, the police arrested them anyway. These kind of situations make me wonder if it's, well, I mean, head trauma, obviously. So already who knows what's going on. But like, feels like the police are having some hand in these false identifications and being like yeah this person came over and like was there was it this person could it have been this person was you said the person was like this but could it have been a person like this instead yeah uh-huh. and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit maybe it maybe was it them you know yeah so the two men were found guilty and Lorlando was sentenced to life in prison and frank was sentenced to death which at that time was hanging did you just say they were found guilty even after yes. Charles was like, nah. Yes. 100% not them. Yep. If they hung this dude. So after the trial, Charles and Rosie got a divorce, probably because he's a good person. And he's like, I don't like what you're doing. Yeah. Um. So after about a year, Rosie confessed and said, the only reason I said it was them was out of jealousy and spite. So this woman had the forethought after being hit in the head with an axe, to go, I'm going to say it was the other Italian grocer on the street, so then we'll get more business. What? I just don't, I don't understand. Can we backtrack? Because you yes. still didn't actually say, did they hang that dude? No. 
she oh, thank God. she confessed that Before she said they, yeah, oh, yeah it was about a year later she confessed and said I just said that and they released both of them well I just didn't know if like he was sentenced and then immediately like taken out and you know thrown up yeah because that that did happen that's what I'm, yeah what a bitch yeah so they released both of them and I mean I don't like to victim blame but I don't like this woman I think she's horrible at least she told the truth at some point but still i don't know if it's victim blaming when the victim did something as after did something wrong yeah like like she didn't do anything wrong to become a victim yes she did something wrong afterwards yes absolutely she used her status as a victim to try to get more business like what yeah i don't know by having someone killed and then another person imprisoned yeah like i don't yeah so a few days later and I'm so sorry because I Googled this and the article that came up said the guide to New Orleans toughest words. So if I say this wrong, it's their fault, <laughs> the, not mine. The guide to New Orleans toughest words. So the Times Picayune newspaper received a letter. Picayune? Picayune. P-I-C-A-Y-U-N-E. Yeah, sure. Picayune. That's what they said. So the letter said it was from hell and it was addressed to esteem mortal to esteemed mortal yes <laughs> okay okay so i'm gonna read the letter hell march 13th 1919 esteem mortal they have never caught me and they never will they have never seen me for i am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth i am not a human being but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell i am what you orleans and your foolish police call the axe man when I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it is better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning. I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise to know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, on next Tuesday, March 19, 1919, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, 
as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the most worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy, the Axeman. What? <laughs> Someone thinks highly of himself. Yo, let's jazz it up on Tuesday. Woo! Uh, yep. Yeah, I'm playing jazz music. Yeah. Easy. Mm-hmm. Easy call. That dude's crazy. Not messing with a crazy guy. I'm so good, thanks. <laughs> so a Tartarus is the deep abyss used to imprison the titans in greek mythology okay and i also tried to find the francis joseph he was talking about Mm -hmm. but i couldn't it kept bringing up the ruler of austria Mm -hmm. but from what i could find he didn't do anything bad so i really don't know what the what it was so i don't i if anyone else knows who the (laughs) hell he was talking about please let us know please let me know but for real what a wacko right crazy guy Anyway, so the newspaper published the letter, and on March 19th, jazz was playing in every home, restaurant, and dance hall. Professional and amateur bands played at hundreds of parties around town, and the night passed without incident. Damn straight. I, there was not a damn person in that city that was like, yeah, you know what? Fuck that guy. He's not going to do anything. You know, I don't anything. like jazz, so yeah. I'm not going to. Nope. No. I don't care if I've never listened to jazz a day in my life. I am playing jazz all night long. Yep. So for several months, the city of New Orleans was quiet, but everyone was still nervous waiting for the other shoe to drop. I mean, especially knowing that like it happened before and yeah. the year went by. Like he stopped before, but so then what it happened? still came back. Yeah. yeah. So then on August 10th, 1919, an Italian grocer named Steve Boca was attacked in his bedroom. What the hell? Steve woke up in the middle of the night to find a dark figure standing over his bed. And I mean, you give this man a flashlight and he sounds like the gold state killer. Just that part. Yeah, oh, because like, they all wake up in bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the man hit Steve in the head with an axe. He survived. And once he regained consciousness, ran over to a neighbor to have them call the police, and then immediately passed out again. But survived. But survived. Good for him. He was treated for his injuries, but again, was not able to remember anything from the attack. Police found a similar crime scene, wooden panel missing from the back door, and again, nothing was missing from the home. Can I just point out? Yes. I would swap out all the doors in my house with like solid metal, no windows. like (laughs) Bunker. Yeah, exactly. Bunker doors. No chances. Yeah. I guess, in theory, only if I was an Italian grocer. Yeah. Grocer. If I wasn't, I guess I'd be fine. Right. Which we're going to find out why, I hope. Anyway. Okay. So about a month later, on September 3rd, 1919, teenager Sarah Lauman was attacked in the middle of the night and suffered severe head injuries. She was hit so hard, she was missing some of her teeth. Oh. Yeah. Ow. Sarah recovered from her injuries, mm-hmm. but could remember nothing. Same as like everybody. I mean, you get hit in the head. Yeah. Not surprised. Also just, I feel like that trauma in general probably already affects your memory. Yeah. You hear about people being attacked all the time and they're just like, I don't remember because their brain just like blinks it out so they don't have to experience that all the time. You couple that with like an actual head injury and I feel like there's just no chance you were ever going to remember anything. Exactly. A bloody axe was found in the front yard, but instead of the door, the man entered from a window this led people to speculate if it was actually the work of the axe man or a copycat. Yeah. 
Feels more like a copycat. I'm assuming she had a wooden door. I mean, yeah. But even then, like, why would he switch up his MO now? And as a teenager, it's not an Italian grocer, you know? So it's like... It doesn't seem... It doesn't seem to fit. Yeah. Then on August 27th, 1919, grocer Mike Pepitone was struck in the head with an axe. His wife heard the commotion and arrived at the bedroom door just in time to see a large man fleeing from the house with an axe. Unfortunately, Mike died shortly after the attack... And he was the last known victim of the Axeman. Damn. I was going to say, like, this dude's streak is so terrible yeah. in terms of actually killing people. I mm-hmm. was holding out. but mm-hmm. So we have a few suspects. Wait, we have suspects, but we don't have an actual... Okay, just go. I won't. Just go. One, an actual demon. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the suspects. That's the one. Nope, we're done. Podcast <laughs> over. It's a demon. Does the demon have a name? No. Just a demon. They didn't know which demon because how would they know? He didn't sign his name. I thought it was the Axe Man. No, that's just. Does that translate to something in some sort of like other oh, like Latin? He Is just like said what you people call me, the Axe Man. Yeah. Well, no, I that was a joke. Yeah, but it's, you know. Two, several people copying each other. Oh, just like. In, like the first one happened and then someone was like, oh, that's genius. Let me go kill another Italian grocer. Yeah. I don't know. Three. An early form of the mafia called the Black Hand. Since it was mostly Italians that were targeted, they felt that it could be like unpaid extortion or something. I actually don't hate that answer. Yep. The one that makes the most sense and the one that I think is probably the most prominent is Joseph Mumphrey. Okay. He led a blackmailing gang that targeted Italian Americans in New Orleans. So a year after... The last victim, Mike Pepitone. Mumphrey was shot by his widow in Los Angeles. She tracked this man down and said, I recognized you running away from my house. I didn't tell the police because I wanted to shoot you myself. She went all the way to California, shot the man in the middle of the street. Yo, <laughs> what? Yeah. His prison times seemed to line up with when the axe man wasn't murdering people. Yeah. And... After the last murder, he left New Orleans for California and there was hmm. not another murder. Huh. Mm-hmm. Probably because homegirl saw him and he was like, it's time to go. And then she was a badass motherfucker and yep. tracked him down mm-hmm. and shot him in the street. Yep. That's incredible. Yep. I hope you would do the same for me. Oh, I would. Okay, good. Maybe not shoot, but they wouldn't find the body. Yeah, don't get in trouble for it. I guess that's the important part. So that is the story of the Axeman of New Orleans. I'm still, hold on, I'm hyped on this. That's okay. fucking awesome. Good for her. Yep. I'm dropping all my F-bombs right now because that's yeah. fucking fantastic. Yep, that's what she did. That, she said she didn't tell the police because she knew who it was and she wanted to take care of it herself because she knew they wouldn't do anything. They would put him in jail. Yeah. And she's like, that's not good enough. Took it into her own hands. Mm-hmm. Yo. Yeah. Good for her. Yep. That's incredible. I have pictures. Now I have pictures. <laughs> this is the slouch hat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Cowboy hat and a fedora had a baby. I 100% see what you mean. Yeah. Yep, but I've seen that in like movies and stuff. And then I have um like a drawing and then the newspaper article from the jazz night. I love the, we ain't scared. We're just doing this for fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's crazy to think that that's like an actual thing that happened. Yeah. Like it sounds like something that someone made up for like a book or like a- 100%. You know. And it's like, nope, yeah, everyone no, literally that... played jazz music that night because they didn't want to die. Yeah. There would be someone right now 
if that if that happened someone would go you can't make me play jazz music you're infringing on my rights it's like okay and then they would be dead and then they would be dead yeah well you're right maybe (laughs) the axeman infringed on your rights but he also infringed that axe upon your head so yeah you might be lucky to survive but wouldn't be the same wouldn't be the same yeah but it was never officially solved Never officially solved. Officially solved. If we take the widow's word for it. Yes. But then also, does that mean that the other ones that identified someone else were copycats? Because, like, the sisters saw a large black man running away. Well. But but that's the question. Like, did they actually? Yeah. I mean. Because I don't entire, I don't believe it. What time of day was it? And then also the time period yes exactly yeah i don't know but the one the window one definitely screams Seems copycat out. to yeah. me like someone had something mm-hmm. against this teenage girl or just wanted to go like yeah do some effed up yeah s effed up s to, <laughs> to self-censor oh my god no it did some fucked up shit yeah there were also apparently some axe murderers in like 1911 that afterwards they contributed to the axe man but not officially so i didn't cover those that's like a while before yeah though right like 1911 and then to 1918 yeah yeah but i guess it's still possible it's still possible but but i mean also i feel like there's probably been a lot of people that have been murdered with an axe you yeah know? so it's like yeah. yeah i think it's like the the wooden panel and the italian grocery mm-hmm. like those are the things that make it like actually that kind of line up mm-hmm. yeah but that letter what psychopath that sounds like something someone would write for like a D&D campaign or something. Just be like, oh, I'm an evil person. Let me write this letter to scare everybody. Yeah. I'm a demon. Yeah. But I please mean, play jazz music. Then please play jazz music. I really enjoy that. Go tell everyone in town to play jazz music. So no, but but seriously, there's obviously a correlation. But what is it with serial killers or like these mass murderers mm-hmm. or whatever, what, what have you, that they write these letters and they they do these things to like taunt and sort Mm -hmm. of i think it's when they have their victim right Mm -hmm. it's terror that they inflict on one person which yeah that helps them they get the rocks off that way way. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah but then because the media is going like oh my god these crimes oh my god oh my god if they write a letter they become this like more terrifying being mm-hmm and then they can inflict terror on a larger scale. As opposed to just this, like, yeah. this minor And group. then they also get the credit for it because they don't want anybody else to get credit for it. Because mm-hmm. usually if that happens, they're like, oh, no, 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 it was me. And this is this is me that did this thing. Yes. Well, it's like BTK, I guess. Yeah. Yep. He was like, yep, did these things. I'm a bad guy. Woo, yeah. crazy, taunt. You can't catch me. It's like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. I'm going to write in riddles so you can't figure out anything. Ha, ha, ha. Though, let's be fair, I'd put Zodiac, like, miles ahead of most serial killers in terms of, like, crazy taunting. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that could actually be solved now. If there's still DNA from it, if they collected any type of DNA. Especially with, like, the prevalence of all these, like, DNA testing. The genetic DNA, yeah. The genetic, yes, the genetic DNA. The genetic DNA. No. But all these DNA Genetic DNA testing. Yes, I know what you meant. But yeah, I, I feel like that could be a possibility. It just depends on the evidence that's actually still there. That exists. And then the more people that do these testing things, maybe yes. eventually 
there could be like a yeah hey there's sort of a match there yeah. let's go investigate and that. you can't just do like 23 and me or ancestry or anything because they specifically have in their terms of agreement that it's not accessible by the police without mm-hmm. a warrant so if that's something that somebody wants to be a part of they would have to download the forms and everything and submit them to, to well they have to submit them to another one like jed match that's a big one that does it because that one is actually searchable mm. by the police and they could compare that's cool but you should also support 23andme because i'm all about that dna based medicine just saying i know infringing on your rights and all that we talked about this earlier but let's just make one thing clear if there is ever a day in the future many many years from now when they can dna test a baby before it's born and determine that there's a piece of their DNA that they could tweak and change. And I know this gets into a whole nother like can of worms that we're going to not talk about right now. But if they could change that piece of DNA to make it so that child doesn't have heart disease, cancer, yes. this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Yes. Do that thing. Yes. But yes. Absolutely. That's that's literally the thing that we, we're trying to get rid of it now. Why would we yeah. not just. Exactly. That just makes sense. But I'm not even going to get into the whole, like, discussion as to if that's morally good, bad, et cetera, et cetera. See, that part is good. It's everything else that people would do with it. Yeah. So. But, yes, support 23andMe, but then just download it and submit it to a company like Jedmatch. To, like, submit it to Please Get a Page. Yes. Do it. So we close all of these cold cases. What? What? All. Because there are probably way too many warehouses full of cold cases. Way too many. Um, I think this is a good spot for a break. Okay. With ads brought to you by Sunshine and Murder. <gasps> hey, guys. Do you want to listen to a podcast about true crime and good stuff? <laughs> Can we advertise our own podcast yes. on our podcast? Yes. I'm going to leave that in because that was really good. <laughs> anyway, and break. Welcome back. So, time for a little i'm gonna stop saying a little sunshine because at this point whether it's sunshine or not i'm just talking about good people and good things so i'm just gonna give you some stuff (laughs) you can listen to it and decide whether or not you want to classify it as sunshine how's that sound i classify it as sunshine so it's well i guess you didn't know what it is but you only know what it is because i back myself into a corner the last two times at least i've done this oh i back myself into a corner and i'm like oh yeah i'm totally gonna talk about this next week like next time on Sunshine and Murder, Michael talks about. <laughs> I'm gonna not do that this time. Okay. But also because I just don't know what I'm talking about next time. Can I just point out that you were blaming me for these past two times, and then after I edited the episode, I was like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you say it each time, not me." Well, I'm officially on the record of saying that it's my fault. You're welcome. Finally. But technically have you admitting speaking, something? this partnership here that we have going on yeah. uh, means 50-50 responsibility no. for all things <laughs> that happen. I'm not taking responsibility for that. No, that's fair. Yeah. I just want to say before I start, too, that this could have been a lot longer than it's going to be because there's so much I could have gone into. I, I sort of gloss over some things, but mm-hmm. I still like shine a light on the big things. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's a lot I could have gone into. This could have been its own episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that 
for another like the next time you have a really long one yeah we can do a two-parter so maybe the first part of the episode is just me Mm. Mm -hmm. just my murder story and then the second part of the episode can be yours so then you can have the full hour and a half or however long it is to just talk about it talk about it to give it kind of the time it needs Mm -hmm. that's not a bad idea because i 100 percent could have used that this time all right so i'm gonna do things a little differently this week i don't know if you're okay with that i'm okay with switching it up perfect in that case in a democracy the right to vote is the most powerful non-violent tool we have many people march and protested for the right to vote some gave a little blood and others lost their lives some of you have heard me say that the right to vote is precious, almost sacred. In my hearts of hearts, I believe that we should make it simple and convenient for all of our citizens to be part of the democratic process. It should not matter whether you're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. We should be able to participate in the democratic process. On March 7, 1965, I gave a little blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the right to vote. Before the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, some people had to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a jar. And all across America today, when people go out to attempt to vote, they stand in long, immovable lines. That's not right, it's not fair, and it's not just. We can do better and we must do better. We have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate to empower all of the American people, not just a select few. We must do what is right, what is fair, and what is just. Today, our democracy is under attack by forces within and forces abroad. We need to fix it and fix it now. This week, I'm talking about John Lewis. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Just warning everybody ahead of time, there will be tears. Born February 21st, 1940, outside Troy, Alabama. He was the third of 10 children born to Willie May Carter and Eddie Lewis. And yes, I said third of 10 children. Good God. <laughs> right poor woman i mean hey she wanted to keep popping him out what are you gonna do uh his <laughs> i don't Did know she? that she wanted to keep popping him out i apologize okay okay i see the side eye i retract my statement <laughs> so his parents were actually sharecroppers in rural pike county alabama okay. uh, for anyone who doesn't know because i did not know what sharecropping was uh Sharecropping is a type of farming in which families would rent small plots of land from a landowner in return for basically a portion of their crop to be given to the landowner at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. I guess there's been different types of sharecropping that have been practiced worldwide for centuries. But in the rural south, uh, it was typically practiced by former slaves. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole discussion we could get into on just sharecropping in general from when I was looking it up. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it was good in some regards because some you know, former slaves were able to actually make some money and then go on and buy their own land and like yeah. do these things. But then some people took advantage of the whole sharecropping of they fact. Did. Yeah. And you know, they would 
basically make people even more broke by like, oh, well, you have to rent my gear and you have to rent this, this and you have to rent that and, 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 you know, just people being Packaging shitty feet. people. Exactly. But yeah, people just being shitty people yeah. and uh, taking advantage of people and it put them farther into debt. So now they own them even more. And it's essentially like they're enslaved anyway. You know what yeah, I mean? So, it's it's the South's way of getting around not being able to own slaves. Exactly. So good for some people. Not good for the majority of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, at the age of five, uh, Lewis... <laughs> I love this so much. Uh, Lewis would preach to his family's chickens on the farm. Um, at five? At five. Oh. Uh, I guess he would baptize them when they were born. And then he had like huge elaborate funerals for them when they died. Oh, my God. Uh, ever since he was a kid, he said he wanted to be a preacher. Oh period. my god! Yeah, if that wasn't obvious by him baptizing baby chickens, chickens. <laughs> that's um, probably the cutest thing I've ever heard. One hundred percent. So growing up in that area outside Troy, Alabama, I guess by the time he was six, he had only ever actually seen two white people in his entire life. Oh wow! Just to like put a perspective of like the area that he grew up in. Okay. It wasn't until he grew older that his family started to actually take him into town on like mm. trips to pick oh. up stuff or whatever. Oh, now uh, I get it. And at that point, he finally actually experienced racism and segregation and sort of how the South was almost like a different, like he he was in a bubble. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And then the second he was let outside that bubble, he was like, oh, this is not this, this a is good thing. This is bad. This isn't cool. No. But that being said, it wasn't actually until he was 11 uh, when his uncle took him on a trip to Buffalo, New York where he was finally able to actually get an idea of how bad segregation really was in Troy because New York obviously was is not the South. Yeah. Buffalo, New York probably at the time especially was probably very integrated and they yeah. were probably, you know what I mean? Like yeah. not in Alabama. Well, yeah. It was in 1955 while attending the Pike County Training High School in Brundage, Alabama when Lewis first heard Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio, became inspired by his works, that he held his first public sermon and began preaching at local churches. Oh, wow. Just for the math, in case anyone isn't doing it at home, 1955 makes John Lewis 15 years old. So at 15 years old, after hearing MLK on the radio, yeah, he became inspired and held his first public sermon and then began preaching at local churches at 15 years old. 15? Mm-hmm. Wow. At 15 years old, I had my headphones in with like a hood over my head and I could barely talk to anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. At 15 years old, I was like, don't talk to me. At all. Please don't. I'm so Go good, away. Thanks. I'm yeah. good. And he was preaching. preaching at churches and like holding sermons. Wow. Mm -hmm. After he graduated from high school, uh, Lewis attended the American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, where he worked as a dishwasher and a janitor to pay for his education. But he had his sights set much higher. Good for him. Holy damn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it was at the age of 17, Lewis actually met Rosa Parks. Um, 17. 17, met Rosa Parks. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any info on, like, the internet at all for this, how he met Rosa Parks or, yeah, like, like what, what, what they were doing. No, and the thing that sucks, too, with researching this in particular is it was so hard to get info anyway. Yeah. Because it, any search with John Lewis's name in it, I had to, like, make sure I was doing, like, quotes around certain searches. Yeah. So it wouldn't pop up with just recent articles. Recent and I'm yeah. like, no, 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 I need an article from His forever life. ago. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So he met her in Nashville? Again, I have, I could not tell you. Okay. Could not tell you. I could find zero information 
but everywhere under the sun does mention that at age 17 lewis met rosa parks okay I would assume back in Alabama, since that's where they were both living. I would think so. I just don't want to Can't put say, anything yeah. on that because I don't know. Exactly. Um, okay. But what I can say is it was Rosa Parks who inspired Lewis to write a letter to Dr. King seeking help in suing Troy State University, which was an all-white school at the time, a university that he wanted to attend. So Rosa Parks like helped inspire him to reach out to Martin Luther King Jr. to be like, hey, I want to sue this school because it's all-white and that's messed up so will you help me so she inspired him yeah. to do that he wrote a letter to martin luther king jr martin luther king jr ended up sending him a round trip bus fare to meet him in montgomery oh my god i was just like great come out to montgomery let's go and so <laughs> king fred gray uh, who was a civil rights attorney at the time and ralph abernathy who was a member of the sclc and a civil rights activist all offered lewis legal and financial assistance to help him like sue oh Troy State University. Oh my God. But Lewis's parents were unequivocally against the lawsuit. That makes sense. They wanted absolutely nothing, nothing to, do to do with, with it. it. The SCLC, for anyone who doesn't know, because I, I did not, uh, is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Hmm. Um, yeah, on January 10th, 1957, following the Montgomery bus boycott, which John Lewis followed. There's a word there that I want to use that I can't think of right now, but he followed it. <laughs> Uh, and it mentions that in, like, everything. It says after he heard uh, Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio the first time, he, like, nonstop followed every speech he gave, every talk he okay. had. He did, followed everything that he did. So Absolutely he was a huge fan yeah. of Martin Luther King Jr., which is why it's even crazier when he reached out. He fanboyed a little. And okay. then he actually heard back from him, you know? That's insane. Okay. But anyway, so on January 10th, 1957, following the Montgomery bus boycott victory, Martin Luther King Jr. invited about 60 black ministers and leaders to Ebenezer Church in Atlanta. Their goal was to form an organization to coordinate and support nonviolent direct action as a method of desegregating bus systems across the South. On February 15th, a follow-up meeting was held in New Orleans, and out of those two meetings came a new organization with King as its president. Initially, it was called the Negro Leaders Conference on Nonviolent Integration. Mm-hmm. Then eventually the Southern Negro Leaders Conference. And then it finally settled on the name Southern Christian Leadership Conference as its name and expanded its focus beyond buses to ending all forms of segregation. As it should. Well, of course. Absolutely. Back on track. As a result of his parents being completely against the lawsuit he just ended up returning to the american baptist theological seminary okay which is unfortunate but it's like why would he just stop out of like respect for his parents i was gonna say certainly the way i read it the way like the articles are written makes it feel like it's out of respect for his parents i don't know that to be true yeah but that the way the things are written because it's like that's almost like verbatim how it reads in every article it leads me to believe that it was out of respect for his parents okay which is like fair absolutely like once you go down that road you there's can't, no coming back yeah you can't go back from there yeah. so he went back to the american baptist theological seminary and that fall he actually began attending sclc direct action workshops that they had that were organized by a james lawson who's a civil rights activist in the southern director for core core for those who don't know because i also don't i know. don't it's okay it's okay not to know i don't know you're not gonna know a lot of the people probably that i talk about or the okay. random names that i drop and that's totally fine because i do not know a lot of them either don't worry i have a huge references and people <laughs> tab on my links so you can like read more about these people too but as cool. usual his <laughs> source link will, links will be much much longer than but mine 15 times longer yeah well there's a lot of info that i don't get to talk about yeah and it's like it sucks because i want 
just because I say a name real quick and I'm like, yeah, James Lawson, he was a civil rights activist and this guy. No, 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 no. He <laughs> he did a lot of things. Yeah. I'm so finding it's... a way to summarize what he did so I don't detract from like the rest of the conversation, which Absolutely. I've already done by talking about this in the first place. But I just want people to be able to access that information yes. if they so choose. Absolutely. Which you should do. So CORE stands for the Congress of Racial Equality. It was a group founded on the belief that nonviolent civil disobedience, such as that used by Gandhi, could actually Ooh. also be used by African Americans to help challenge racial segregation in the U.S. Makes sense. So they were trying to use him as like a figure to then, yeah. Makes uh, sense. So James Lawson taught like that, basically. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Lewis actually began to follow the Gandhian philosophy, that was air quotes for everyone who couldn't see that, of nonviolence, becoming involved in student sit-ins to integrate movie theaters, restaurants, and businesses. That's awesome. Yeah, those are all organized by that that core, the oh, Congress okay. of Racial Equality. Lewis's first arrest, he had many more. <laughs> and he was uh, very proud of them. Very proud of them. Came in February of 1960, uh, when he and other students demanded service at whites-only lunch counters in Nashville. Good uh, for them. Hell yeah. David Halberstam, Halberstam? H-A-L-B-E-R-S-T-A-M, not important, who was then a reporter for the Nashville Tennessean, uh, later described the scene as, quote, The protests had been conducted with exceptional dignity, and gradually one image had come to prevail, that of elegant, courteous, young black people holding to their Gandhian principles, seeking the most elemental of rights, while being assaulted by young white hoodlums who beat them up and on occasion extinguished cigarettes on their bodies. Ow! What in the ever-living fuck? You think racist white people are bad today? Oh, no. Like... I remember those videos at that museum we went to. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was the worst thing. It was uh, Monroe Elementary that you're thinking of. It was the Brown v. Board of Education his National Historical Site. Yeah. Yeah. So when we went there, in one of the rooms, there was this hallway with video of white teenagers just yelling awful awful things and you had to walk through it almost like it was happening to you i could not imagine doing that on a daily basis or in real life versus like being video because it was bad enough yes it being video it was just a video and of course black and white well obviously but just walking through that i don't Mm -mm. i do not understand the strength these people had to just take it and just yep. keep going and just march on <sighs> i yeah i feel like these last few episodes have maybe just like keep not being able to come up with words to yes. use to describe certain things yes. and this is one of those situations where like the fact that all these things that happened yeah happened it's insane to think about especially now which is kind of funny to say because it's coming up again 100 percent. and you just sit there and hear these people saying these awful things and you're like what is wrong with you yeah but then you think of the time they grew up and you're like you're just doing it all over again yeah so circling back it's the crazy part is to go wow like people today are really fucked up and racist like there's a lot of racist pieces of shit and garbage in this world that just need to bad things (laughs) uh and that's today Yes. In 2020. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when all of the laws and rules and like progression that has happened in the world has happened. Yes. So let's go back to the 60s 
when people could just open, not that they can't openly today for political and other reasons, but it was widely accepted back then to be a racist piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like, so it was open season back then. I couldn't even imagine. No. Sorry for the sidetrack. So after about three months of repeated Mm sit-ins for the whites-only lunch counters in Nashville, the city's political and business communities actually gave in to the pressure, and Nashville became the first major southern city to begin desegregating public facilities. Good for them. That's, I mean, I I feel like that's a pretty significant... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, in that process, Lewis lost all of his family's goodwill, which makes sense based on their previous thought about the whole... They don't want to cause any problems or... Yeah do anything like that so they're just like please for the love of god stop stirring up things and exactly. causing trouble type of thing when his parents learned uh that he'd been arrested in nashville like i said they, they were he, him losing their goodwill is like the easiest way to put it you yeah know what i mean yeah but he says and this is i think from his memoir uh that they taught him as a child to accept the world as he found it when he asked them about signs saying quote colored only mm-hmm. uh, they would tell him that's just the way it is don't get in trouble mm. Uh, As an adult, however, he said it was after he met Dr. King and Rosa Parks that he was inspired to, quote, get into trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. (laughs) That's a nice quote. That's a very nice quote. That's a very nice quote. A hundred percent. So all of that was pre-graduation. Oh, my God. Let's just go. Let's just like bring (laughs) you back to reality for a second and put you in like place where sort of we are in the timeline. Yeah. Everything that happened there was all pre-graduating from that american baptist theological seminary wow mm-hmm. but so he did graduate wow. from that seminary yeah uh and he actually went on to be uh ordained as a baptist minister oh mm-hmm. i didn't know that you do now you're welcome imagine the sermons he would give <laughs> for real in 1961 mm-hmm. he joined a freedom ride that was organized by core I see your eyebrows going up and you're like, what's a freedom ride? Uh Because I also had no idea what freedom ride was. So freedom riders were civil rights activists who would ride interstate buses into segregated southern like states throughout 1961 and subsequent years to basically challenge the non-enforcement of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Morgan v. Virginia Uh and Boynton v. Virginia, which ruled that segregated public buses were unconstitutional. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. They, they weren't enforcing yes. that ruling. Yes. And so they were basically enforcing like, it themselves. you have to do this. You know what so I mean? So I'm going to be on this bus and you can't stop me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so John Lewis and others were, ba- uh, I mean, it's bad. Like they were beaten bloody when they tried oh, to enter God. a whites only waiting room at a bus station in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Later, he was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama, and then beaten again in Montgomery, where several others were actually severely injured and oh, one was even God. paralyzed for the rest of their life. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's quoted as saying, uh, if there was anything I learned on that long, bloody bus trip of 1961, it was this, that we were in for a long, bloody fight here in the American South, and I intended to stay in the middle of it. Good for him. But yeah, uh, it was in 1962 that John Lewis was actually elected to the board of the SCLC. Oh. Um, They elected him to help encourage more young people to join the organization. Makes sense. And then in 1963, Lewis was actually named chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Nice. Uh, which was an organization founded by Ella Baker, who at the time was actually the director of the SCLC. 
She was actually a critic of what she perceived as King's top-down leadership at the SELC. Okay. She's quoted as saying, strong people don't need strong leaders. And that was what she would like basically preach to all the young activists. She was like, you're strong and capable of doing this yourself. You don't need to sit by and wait for direction wait. from like us. Like, Go out and like fight. You Do know? this. So the committee tried to help basically seek to coordinate and assist direct action challenges to the civic segregation and political exclusion of African Americans. That was a like, direct quote. Oh, nice. So he was made the chairman of that. Chairman. Mm-hmm. So that was just one of the things that happened in 1963. Yeah. You know, earlier in 1963. I say that because on August 28th, 1963, and there's a lot of people that are going, oh, shit, here it is. John Lewis was a keynote speaker at the March on Washington. Yes, that March on Washington, where MLK gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. So one of the speakers who went up before MLK gave the I Have a Dream speech was John Lewis. And how old was he? In 1963? Yeah. He was 23 years old. Oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry, but this man opened up for Martin Luther King at 23. 23 years old. Holy damn. John Lewis, along with, uh, I mean, a bajillion other people. Yeah. Marched on Washington. Yeah. And gave speech, like, I don't, to... Uh, like 100 100,000 people you know what i mean like that's insane that's plus insane. it was televised or at least pre-recorded i don't know if it, i'm sure it was televised that's insane yeah 23 years old and actually uh, his speech was distributed to fellow organizers the evening before the march yeah and it actually garnered like a bunch of resistance from people who thought it was too divisive and too militant really yeah which is weird because he's supposed to be like this whole nonviolent yeah. person right they specifically cited a part of his speech that called for immediate action and disavowed quote patience and some people even went as far as like threatening to pull out of the march and like pull their organizations out of oh, the march. oh wow yeah lewis absolutely did not want to change his speech and the dispute actually continued until like minutes before the first talks were supposed to start happening yeah and basically it was uh, until under threat of public denouncement by those religious leaders like all the leaders from those groups and the rest of the coalition lewis was finally like all right i'll take out some of the crazy stuff (laughs) okay okay yeah fine i'll tone it down for you but uh even after toning down his speech lewis still called for activists to quote get in and stay in the streets of every city every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes yes (laughs) yes do it absolutely um, and then for everyone who doesn't know, the March on Washington is actually credited with being the thing that helped pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I feel like this doesn't need to be said. But for everyone who does not know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It prohibited unequal application of voter registration requirements, hold on to that, and racial segregation in schools, employment, and public accommodations. I'm holding good because it turns out that act was not enough yeah which brings me Mm -hmm. to the next big day in john lewis's incredible career and that's bloody sunday so march 7th 1965 an estimated 600 civil rights marchers headed southeast out of selma alabama on u.s highway 80 headed to montgomery as a form of protest against state legislation that helped to disenfranchise african-american voters oh my god that's a 54-mile march, by the way. Oh, my God. So it take place over three days. So it's not like they were going to do it all one day, but 54 miles. That's insane. And they were going to march right to, I think the idea was like the capital in Montgomery, and they were going to march right up to George Wallace and basically be like, 
Go fuck yourself. Yeah. I guess they were actually already protesting. Like, this wasn't the first protest for, like, voter rights or any of that stuff. That makes sense. Um, And the reason I say that is because on February 18th, white segregationists actually attacked a group of peaceful demonstrators in the town of Marion, Alabama. And in all that chaos, an Alabama state trooper fatally shot Jimmy Lee Jackson, uh, who was a young African-American demonstrator. And he's credited with being the thing that helped jumpstart the idea for the March to Montgomery in the first place. So it was after his death that they were like, okay, this just went from like a really bad thing to the worst possible thing. So we need to get some people together and go down there and march. So they did. Hmm. And that march ended up being led by John Lewis and the Reverend Hosea Williams. So the protest. Yes. Went according to plan. Until the marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Before I say what happened, because a lot of people already know, but currently there is a movement uh, to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge in honor of John Lewis. Yes, and I'm gonna link. Yes. I'm gonna link to the petition, so anybody that wants to go sign it, you can. But just so everyone knows, yes, that is a thing that should happen. Yeah, but there's just a whole debate right now as to whether or not you should like scrub away history because that bridge is like so historic. But at the same time, I feel like naming it after him is honoring it's, that memory yes. in a way. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like. The the argument, at least as I see it, is that this event happened and the bridge's name is synonymous and iconic with that event. Yeah. So by like changing the name of the bridge, it feels like you're erasing the history of what happened there. And that's the argument is like how I read it. I still think that it makes sense because you're still honoring not only the people and what happened, but also John Lewis, yes. who was the one that led the march across the bridge. Yes. Everyone's going, well, what happened on the bridge? I don't even know what happened on the bridge. <laughs> So it was as they were crossing that bridge uh, where they encountered a wall of state troopers and a county posse basically waiting for them on the other side, blocking parts of U.S. Route 80 or Route 80, which is what they were taking. Mm-hmm. <sighs> this is fucked. You're not going to like this. Apparently, County Sheriff Jim Clark had issued an order for all white males in Dallas County over the age of 21 to report to the courthouse that morning to be deputized. Fuck off. Literally fuck off. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was at that point that commanding officer John Cloud told demonstrators to disband at once and go home. At that point, Reverend Hosea Williams tried to speak to the officer, but Cloud informed him that there was absolutely nothing to discuss. Of course. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. Go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. Seconds later, the troopers began shoving the demonstrators, knocking them to the ground, and beating them with nightsticks. Another detachment of troopers fired tear gas, and mounted troopers charged the crowd on horseback. This sounds too familiar. And I'm not just saying that because we hear about it in history class, but like because of everything else. It seems like nothing has changed. Yeah. To say that it echoes things that are happening today would be an understatement. But also, you heard the audio. I'm. There will be a link to the video as well. If you watch the video, I mean... I don't know how you could ever even argue that that level of force was, like, necessary. No. Or warranted in the first place. I mean, obviously, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Of course. Racists will be racist, you know, but. I mean, they were literally standing there not moving. 
Yeah. And the police just come up and like push them. Yeah. And trample on top of them and just start beating them. Yeah, you literally see John Lewis just chilling in the front. Yeah. Just like hanging out, staring down these officers, just like doing nothing. Yeah. And then they go up and without a second like warning, just start shoving people. Yeah. And people start turning around to run away. And then but they, they can't get away. Not even can they not get away. They are chased. Yeah. And then beat. So it's not like they wanted them to run away. They wanted to beat people. Yeah. That was the only possible explanation for what happened. And it, it was never like, oh, we're going to scare them so they leave. It was, oh, we're going to beat the shit out of a bunch of people. Which is why he was like every white man over the age of this. Mm-hmm. Because he knew that they would do it. Yeah. He wanted to put the fear of God into those people. And he was hoping that that would get them to, like, quit, you know? Yes. Oh, I'm going to end this whole... Uh, Thing right here. Yeah, exactly. So televised images of the brutal attack finally gave sort of audiences images, yeah. you know, to, like... This is what's happening. This is what's going on in this, like, civil rights issue. And so that sort of helped actually inadvertently rousing support yeah you know for the voting rights campaign that they were having you see this peaceful protest and the police just kind of pushing their way through them and beating them yeah it's gonna make people go wait they weren't doing anything yeah no i mean 100 percent. yeah um so i have a photo for you and it'll be on the website for everyone else okay uh and it's actually of john lewis at the selma march Oh, my God. Yeah, and it'll be online for everyone else. And it's literally him, like, being held down to the ground and, like, beaten with a nightstick. So, yeah, I don't know what to say about it, but it, it'll be online. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty It's pretty hard to look at. Yeah. That being said, once you've looked at that photo, or if you're driving, don't look at the photo, look at it later. Um, but John Lewis actually ended up suffering a skull fracture. Yeah. I could imagine. Uh, yeah, and in all, 17 marchers were hospitalized and 50 were treated for lesser injuries. And then obviously the day became known as Bloody Sunday. I'm surprised it was only that many. Oh, I mean, 100%. It could have been so much worse. So much worse. And I'm sorry, did you want to look at the photo? You kept like trying to... Oh, I was looking at what's going on in other parts of the photo. Oh, got you. Like, what is this guy carrying? Uh, well, a lot of people were marching with, with like, a bag of stuff they would need for three days. three days. And actually, in his backpack, all he had, he said, was he had two books, uh, an apple, an orange, and then a toothbrush and toothpaste. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. But, I mean, yeah, I could do, like, an actual entire episode just by itself on the Selma to Montgomery marches. Yeah. And there, there's just so much info yeah. that I'm not talking about or not mm-hmm. going into because it doesn't necessarily pertain directly to John Lewis's life. Obviously it does, but it's it doesn't. But I mean they ended up going back with MLK like yeah. two days later and there was like two thousand people this I, yeah. there's there's a lot that we could talk about. <laughs> anyway, so that was March seventh. Uh on March fifteenth, President Lyndon B. Johnson went on national television to pledge his support to the Selma protesters and to call for the passage of a new voting rights bill. That he was introducing in Congress. Yes. That bill was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibited racial discrimination in voting. So I actually have the a link to the speech that Lyndon B. Johnson gave Ooh. that I'll link off to on the website. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section 
and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. The part that gets me, I think, in that speech yeah. is the... It's, it's not a Southern problem. It's not a Northern problem. It's an American problem. Yes. Period. Because it was and is. It's yeah. It still is. Yeah. Like it, anyone that tries to argue that the racism is dead, the racism doesn't exist, you know, or like it's still an American problem. Yes. Period. Yes. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just a hundred percent unequivocally. So according to the New York Times, uh, by the time of the urban race riots of the 1960s, particularly in the Watts section of Los Angeles in 1965 many african-americans had rejected nonviolence in favor of direct confrontation fair yeah i mean i don't have an yeah i mean when you're trying to do a peaceful protest and you are literally beaten yeah by n- police officers i mean you kind of go okay it, well we'll fight back not even just police officers like everybody normal people yeah. well not normal people fucked up people but yeah it, well but and the thing is like <laughs> we've already said this a couple times but talk about mirroring problems today yeah you know what i mean like it's wild you're telling me at one point people were fed up with the fact that like nonviolence wasn't getting them anywhere and started acting up what yeah does that surprise no shit people are gonna get pissed off mm-hmm. if they're trying to have civil discourse with you yes and openly be like hey we have these problems let's fix yeah. them and you're going no, nah, we're good and beating the shit out of them. It's like arguing with someone with their finger in the air is going, la, 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 yeah. la, la, I can't hear you. But the difference is they're also like beating you with a stick while they yes. do it. Yes. You know what I mean? Like no shit. People are going to get pissed off and yeah. fight back. Anyway, so Lewis actually ended up being ousted as the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1966 and was replaced by Stokely Carmichael. It was it was purely because of his nonviolent standpoint. Oh, they okay. wanted someone who was a little more like radical in that regard. Doku Carmichael is the one who popularized the phrase "black power." Oh, if that helps put it into perspective for you. Now I understand. Yeah. So after that, Lewis actually ended up spending a few years out of the limelight. I guess would be the best way to say it. He ended up heading the voter education project, nice. uh, trying to register voters. In 1967, he went and finished his bachelor's degree in Good religion and philosophy at Fisk University in Nashville. And it was during this period of sort of being out of the limelight that he actually met uh, Lillian Miles, who was a librarian, teacher, and former Peace Corps uh, volunteer. They ended up getting married in Aww. 1968. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to let that sink in just for a minute because it's a happy moment. Like it's a sort of breath of fresh air in all of this. Yeah. So in 1975, Lewis was actually awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize. Nice. Um, in 1981, he was elected to the Atlanta City Council which is where he started his sort of political career. Yeah. And in 1986, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, where he was, which is where most people, not most people, but it's where a lot of people know him from, obviously, is Representative John Lewis. You probably saw his face all over, like, everything ever. He was there from 1986 to 2020. 
1986, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, where he was reelected 16 times. Oh, running, my God. Hold on. It gets way better. Running unopposed in 1996, 2004, 2008, and again in 2014 and 2018. So the answer is yes. Yes, he was from oh 1986 until his death in 2020. Also, who would run against him? Yeah, I should look it up and uh, put him on blast. <laughs> like, you actually think you can win against this man? Like, wait a second. Yeah, so also, on that point that you made, uh, wow. only once, and it was in 1994, did he ever win by less than 70% of the vote oh in the general God. election. Yeah. Less than 70. 70%, less than 70% of the vote. So it was only one time, and that was in 94. Wow. Yeah. I don't really go on to discuss his political career, yeah. um, which again I could, but it would just it would be and its it would just own be me talking. Yeah, exactly. It would just be me talking politics, politics all the time. In two thousand and one, he was awarded the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. In two thousand two, he was awarded the NAACP Spingarn Medal. In two thousand three, President George W. Bush signed a bill that Lewis had first proposed in nineteen eighty eight. So it took a little while. Jesus. Uh, but creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Ooh. which is now located adjacent to the Washington Memorial, and it actually held its opening ceremony on September twenty fifth, twenty sixteen. So it took a while to sort of get yeah. made, but at least it happened. I guess, but it happened, the, and That's... it was all like from a bill that John Lewis originally proposed in nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. And then in 2011, John Lewis was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. Which, imagine that. I'm just going to cry for a second. <laughs> You're fighting for African-American rights mm-hmm. your entire life. And then you get awarded a medal by the first African-American president. Which is crazy. Imagine being the first African-American president and awarding the Presidential right? Medal like the of Freedom to John Lewis. I could only imagine, like, I'm sure both of them were kind of giddy and just like, I can't believe this is actually happening. Sorry, Brandy needed a minute to cry. <laughs> I think I'm okay. But, but yeah, I mean, I don't, that's obviously a very yeah big thing, um, which I'll, I'll see if I can pull up the video and I'll like link so you guys can see him being awarded the medal. But so in addition to continuing his work in Congress, Lewis actually breached a younger audience by helping to create a series of graphic novels, which is the one you're probably waiting for, yep. uh, about his work in the civil rights movement titled March, which, again, I will also link off to. So you can order it off of Amazon. But in 2016, he actually won the National Book Award for the third installment in that series, which marked the first time that a graphic novel has ever received that award in history. Oh, wow. And that has been given out since the 1950s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's not like it's some new award that was yeah. made up for, like, that award's been out for years, years. like wow. since predating the civil rights movement you know what yeah. i mean so like that's a, i feel like a pretty huge absolutely he ended up accepting the award with co-writer andrew aiden and illustrator nate powell mm. here's actually some of his acceptance speech for you i'm gonna i couldn't find a video to it so i'm gonna read it unfortunately sorry some of you know i grew up in rural alabama very poor very few books in our home I remember in 1956, when I was 16 years old, going to the public library to get library cards. We were told the library was for whites only and not for coloreds. And to come here and receive this honor, it's too much. And just to help Brandy, who's about to cry, uh, as a fun fact, I guess he would go to Comic-Con and dress up as himself from his march from Selma to Montgomery. 
in his like sort of you know trench coat and backpack and he would go to comic-con and like take photos with kids and like sign copies of march and he he would like lead kids on like a march like basically around comic-con and stuff she's still crying i'm sorry i tried but i'll I'll have a photo up of that too it's actually pretty awesome it's pretty wholesome that's adorable so after his long and storied career uh and after seeing the inside of a jail cell more than 45 times oh my god As I'm sure a lot of people know, John Lewis unfortunately passed away on July 17th of this year um, after a battle with pancreatic cancer, which just doubled down on cancer's a bitch. Yeah. I'll throw up a link to some pancreatic cancer slash cancer charities in general, too, just to make sure those resources are on there in case you guys want to donate. And they do have options if you wanted to donate in someone's name. Yeah, so you could always donate in John Lewis's name. But rather than giving you an earful about how important his messages and the messages of all the civil rights leaders still are today. If that's not obvious, just turn on the news for (laughs) one second. I'm going to link on the website to a a million and one ways you can get involved and help support the current Black Lives Matter movement because you need to get involved. A hundred percent. It's not even like a, oh, well, maybe if I have no, Nope. You need to get involved, period, end of sentence. That's it. Yes. If you're if you're sitting on the sidelines and just like waiting for something to happen, you're doing it wrong. Yes. Please go support in any way that you can. New York Magazine put together an incredible resource of of charities and organizations that are working to to help support the the BLM movement, um, and it's like a, a list of like a hundred and something organizations, and and then I have a couple other ones too. So wow. just do whatever you can. And I'll and I'll quote a quote here for everyone, uh, not from John Lewis but some people will get this. Do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. And if you need any more reason than that, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to leave you with two things. The second of which will be after our sign-off, both of which, I think, still hold an immense amount of weight today. First, a quote from John Lewis. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And that's John Lewis. And now I'm going to go cry myself to sleep. Good night, everybody. (laughs) All of our sources, all of the links and everything that we keep talking about are all under the episode on the website. I make sure all of them are there every week. You can follow us on all of the social medias at Sunshine and Murder Podcast. Um, you can always email at, email at us. I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. You can email <laughs> us at sunshineandmurderpodcast at gmail.com. And I guess we will see you guys next Wednesday. We will see you next week. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis.
march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of, for hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, but they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Palmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police dogs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstrations. In its present form, this bill will not protect the citizen of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear of a police state. It will not protect the hundreds and thousands of people who have been arrested upon Trump charges. What about the three young men, Snickfield's secretary in America's Georgia, who faced the death penalty for engaging in peaceful protests? As it stands now, the voting section of this bill will not help the thousands of black people who want to vote. It will not help the citizens of Mississippi, of Alabama, and Georgia who are qualified to vote but lack a sixth grade education. One man, one vote is the African crop. It is our tool. It must be ours. We must have legislation that will protect the Mississippi sharecropper, who is put off of his farm because he died to register to vote. We need a bill that will provide for the homeless and starving people of this nation. We need a bill that will ensure the equality of a maid who earns $5 a week in the home of a family whose total income is $100,000 a year. We must have a good FEPC bill. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. But by and large, American politics is dominated by politicians who build their career on immoral compromising and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say, my party is the party of principles? For the party of Kennedy is also the party of Islam. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where is the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the federal government for a peaceful protest. But what did the federal government do when Albany Deputy Sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the federal government do when local police officials kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? 
Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail, but we will go to jail if this, this is the price we must pay for love brotherhood and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. We're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. By the forces of our demand, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient.